Amen. Good morning, King's Cross. Pleasure to be with you and to gather again on this Lord's Day to open up His Word. Uh, And even especially uh, when you're able to watch and see a brother come to faith, be baptized, join the church, and then read the Scripture before the sermon. It's a humbling and joyful thing uh, to see God's work and uh, and to be together as a faith family, seeing what God is indeed doing. Uh Uh-oh, I'm throwing pins at people up here. One of my greatest joys is indeed being a member of this church. Gathering week in and week out with this faith family reminds me of what is true about God, what is true about myself, what is true about this broken world. Hearing you sing praises every Sunday morning, week in and week out, points me and reminds me of the gospel truth that indeed the tomb is empty and the throne is occupied. That Christ himself has lived for us, died for us, risen for us, and is ascended and praying for us and promises to return for us. And I hear this as you sing praises to God in my ears. It reminds me that when I'm struggling, I'm not alone. My brothers and sisters are here to help me. When I'm in the valley and somebody's on the mountaintop, they can reach down and pick me up and carry me along the way. It reminds me and helps me and encourages me to fight the good fight of the faith. As a family, week in and week out, we go home. And either on the way home or gathered around the lunch table as we have lunch, somebody inevitably says, I love our church. I'm thankful for our church. And again, I say all of this as a member of this church. It's also a great privilege to be a pastor and to be a shepherd, but I'm just talking to you as a Christian this morning. I'm grateful to be a part of this faith family. And all of those things, all of this reality is a gift of God's grace. He's done it all. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Vain, he must do this work. He's the one building his church such that the gates of hell should not prevail against it. He's the one who gets the glory. He's the one who's done the work. But this gift of grace is a gift that we ought to pursue. We ought to expect and pursue this kind of affection for God and affection for his people. Something incredible happens when we gather as God's people under God's word. As those purchased by the very blood of God's son, brought to life and guided through life by the power of God's own Holy Spirit, all to the glory of our God, God and Father. As we gather and do this, this is something angels long to look into and see what our God is doing and how he's bringing forth redemption in and through his people. And friends, week after week, do we not need these reminders, these gifts of grace, these evidences of grace? Because can't this world be so cruel as we live through life in a broken world? Not only that, but can our hearts be so fickle, prone to wonder, Lord, we feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. Do we not need these reminders and these gifts of grace from the people of God to encourage us in the fight? Can't we feel the truths of the gospel drift from our minds even worse from our hearts week to week? As we look at division and fights in every news cycle. As our hearts are broken because massive heart attacks happen to beloved friends. Cancer claims yet another one. People who we thought were going to walk with God to the end abandon the faith. The world is broken. We're hurting. Do we not need to come together for these gospel encouragements? Can it all get so exhausting? Do we not need to hear those precious words again and again from our Savior? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm gentle and lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This morning we continue our study in the 
Ten Commandments were the fourth, or the ten words, uh, more accurately, the fourth of ten commandments. In this, God instructs Israel on the Sabbath. Now, this commandment is the longest of the ten words, and it's also the most debated among Christians as to how we're to live in light of this truth on this side of Calvary, in light of this command. Therefore, I invite you, as I preach the word this morning, to lean in as my heart and goal is to faithfully teach you the text and the primary implications, while also briefly, briefly exposing you to different views and interpretations. Now, I say briefly because this is a sermon, not a lecture. I want your hearts to be present, presently and actively stirred to worship the God who gives rest, not merely to learn different theological arguments so that you can have theological fights. I want you to hear the glorious invitation of Christ in Matthew 11 inviting you to come to him to have rest. And I want you to obey and find rest for your souls on this Lord's Day in a fresh way, in such a fresh way that leaves you longing for the next Lord's Day when we gather again, Lord willing. For others of you, perhaps this morning, you'll find the rest your soul's been longing for your whole life that you've never found. So let's even pray again and ask for God's help as we look into the fourth commandment. Father, we come to you through Christ our Lord, who invites us to come to him to find rest for our souls. And we come by the power of the Holy Spirit, asking, Spirit, guide us into truth. Your word is truth. Fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Help us rest, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So first, I just want to kind of ask and answer the question as we walk through this. What is the fourth commandment? What is the fourth commandment? Let's read again Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So again, what is the Sabbath? Because we'll see here what is the Sabbath, how do we observe the Sabbath, and then why, even in, in this text, in this commandment. But the first question is, what is the Sabbath? Before we can even get to that, I want you to notice the first word is the word remember. Remember the Sabbath and day and keep it holy. Now, one thing I want you to notice about this is the first three commandments were oriented negatively. You should have no other gods before me. You shall not make any idols. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. But suddenly we come to the fourth commandment and there's something stated positively. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. So in the first commandment, God is not interested in second place nor sharing first place. He's not interested in you worshiping the right God but worshiping him wrongly, the second commandment. He's not interested in being misrepresented and you attaching his, names, his name to things it's not attached to. But when we come to the fourth commandment, he says, no, no, I want you to remember your rest. So it begins with positive, though there are prohibitions that we'll see in just a minute, but it begins with a positive statement. Each of the other commandments have, uh, commandments have positive implications, but this is an explicit statement, positive from the get-go. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Remember your rest. It, it, again, this, the, the, it begins by saying, remember. That's the call to memory and practice. So it's not just intellectually recall it to your brain, but recall in such a way that you live differently right now as you remember this Sabbath. Bring it to your mind and act. It's a reminder to commemorate and respond. So clearly the, the Sabbath was, was practiced before Mount Sinai, before this moment, because there's a reminder of the Sabbath to practice it. 
If you've been with us in our study in Exodus, you'll remember it's Exodus chapter 16. When Israel's wandering around the wilderness and God is providing for them quail from heaven, a quail and manna from heaven. And we said for the little ones who I just had a, a wonderfully encouraging uh, interaction recently where one of the kids said, it's like Pastor Clint talking about duck donuts from heaven. Yes, yeah, so they were listening. You think kids aren't listening. They're listening. <laughs> then, then manna, duck donuts, they got it. All right, that's what's going on. But there was this, uh, God was, had Israel wandering in the wilderness and he promised to provide for them supernaturally. But if you remember, he said, no, every day I'll provide what you need for that day. But on the sixth day, I'll provide enough for two days. And why did he say that? Look at Exodus 16, verse 29. See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in, this, in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the Sabbath, on the seventh day. So Yahweh already had Israel in a pattern of working six days and resting on the Sabbath. That is the Sabbath. And this word Sabbath simply means to cease or to rest. Shabbat. In Hebrew, it just means to cease or to rest. So God has given Israel a pattern of working six days, resting on the seventh day. And on this seventh day, Israel is to cease or rest from all of her work, set apart this day as holy unto the Lord. Leviticus 23.3 says it like this, Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. So this 24-hour period, beginning on Friday evening into Saturday evening, was a time of rest unto the Lord. Now, how? So that's, that's what the Sabbath is. How? What does it look like? How do you do this Sabbath rest? How does Israel to obey God's command? Verse 9 and 10, how did they keep it holy? What was required? Look at verse 9. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Now, before we move forward, I just want you to notice God is a working God, and he created his people in his image to work. So work is dignified right here. Six days you're to do all of your work. Work is not something you should do and assume God is not interested in your work. Work itself is not a result of the fall. We read in Genesis 3, 17 and 19 that, that work is difficult because of the fall, but work itself began before the fall. Even when God created man in his image in Genesis 2, 15, the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So man was working before sin enters the world. It's just that uh, sin and brokenness entering the world makes work difficult. We do it by the sweat of our brow. There's now thorns and thistles. There's now problems with work. But what I want you to see before we even get to ceasing from our work is that there's no true work that is not seen as significant by God. No matter your vocation, if you're laboring as a stay-at-home mom, a police officer, a teacher, a businessman or businesswoman, if you're in food services as a janitor or a salesman, if you're an accountant or a realtor in vocational ministry or nonprofit work, if you're coaching, if you're in blue collar work or white collar work, if you are working, you are imaging forth the glorious God who created you to work. Our God is a working God. And He says positively, do your work in six days. And He dignifies work. Your work matters. This is why the Apostle Paul in Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. God's people are to work. We're not to be idle. We're not to be lazy. Laziness is sin. Idleness is sin. Wasting time and meaningless folly is sin. God's people are to get their work done. One reason we struggle to rest in the Lord the way we ought to rest in the Lord it's because we don't work in the Lord when we ought to be working in the Lord. 
We end up resting or playing when we should be working and working when we should be resting or playing. But God has given and established this pattern, six days to labor, one day for rest from labor unto the Lord. So you're to do your work in six days. Then, how do we Sabbath? Do your work in six days, which means I gotta be thinking about what I'm doing and getting it done so that when I get to this day, I can actually rest. But on the seventh day, work stops. Verse 10, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, the sojourner who's within your gates. Let me just point out a few things about the Sabbath and how Israel was to Sabbath and even think about how we respond to this even today. First, I want you to notice Sabbath rest is a faith issue. Sabbath rest is a faith, faith issue. God's people needed reminders that it is God who provides for them. That they are to work, they're not to remain idle. But they can take a day and say, I'm not going to work because I trust God is Jehovah Jireh. He provides for me. Because we are fickle. We're prone to wonder, Lord, we feel it. We're prone to trust in our work to take care of ourselves, not the God who says he'll take care of us. We're prone to think, if I get enough riches piled up, I won't even need God anymore. We're prone to look to ourselves, and so we need reminders. No, no, no. The Sabbath rest for Israel was this, no, no, I'm going to set aside 24 hours holy to the Lord to say, you are sovereign. And you're good. You provide for your people. You've always provided for your people. You've always taken care of us. You will always take care of us. This is a faith issue. It takes faith in God to stop and rest. Again, otherwise we'll subtly begin to believe those demonic whispers that we can provide for ourselves apart from God. God's people need reminders that it's God who redeems and sanctifies. Ezekiel 20, 12. Moreover, I gave them my Sabbaths. As a sign between me and them that they might know I am the Lord who sanctifies them. You need reminders that it is God. You can rest. He's going to complete the good work he began in you, Philippians 1.6. He's the one who saved you. He's the one who will keep you. He's the one who will get you to glory. You need to rest from your labor and understand he's the one who's done all of the work. Martin Luther, the reformer, said the spiritual rest which God especially intends in this commandment is that we not only cease from our labor and trade, but much more, that we let God alone work in us, and that in all our powers we do nothing of our own. So, so Sabbath rest is a faith issue, but also Sabbath rest is a justice issue. Notice he says, for everyone. Male servants, female servants. My man, even, like, he even gets down to the, to the animals. <laughs> he's like, even give the animals a day off. <laughs> but he's demonstrating, hey, social classes, Everyone gets this rest. Everyone is made in the image of God. Everyone's work is dignified. And so he's telling Israel, as I do this, as I have you set apart this day, I want you to understand, this is not just for the boss man so he can rest, but he can keep all his people working for him. This is for everyone. This is a social, this is a social reality and issue. Everyone is to rest. Everyone is to work. Everyone is to rest from their work. If you don't do that, in Israel's day, and we can have conversations again in our own, but if you're not willing to let those whom you're in charge of rest, you're demonstrating, I'll trust God enough for me to rest, but kind of, as long as somebody else is working for me besides God. So he's demonstrating, no, 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 this is, this is a justice issue. God has made man in his image to work and to rest. All should rest. This means for Christians, as the people of God, you should, we should be different kinds of bosses or managers, 
The way we lead and, and have and use authority should be the kind of authority that reflects the good authority of our good God. It changes how we interact, that we ought to dignify and, and honor and celebrate and appreciate and even give rest to those underneath. I think Chick-fil-A is a good illustration of this, right? Not only is it incredible chicken, <laughs> but there's a, there's a, Chick-fil-A made a decision, a bold decision that I think has been a prophetic witness. Now, I'm not saying every Christian business owner has to do exactly what Chick-fil-A has done, so don't mishear me. I'm just saying there's something about saying, no, 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 Christians treat those who work for them and underneath their businesses in their businesses differently because everybody's work matters, every worker matters. But also even the animals. Creation needs to be admired and stewarded well. So even say, hey, let the animals rest. Like your job in creation is not to use creation and use it and just run it uh, into the ground just to make stacks on stacks on stacks. <laughs> No, no, we're to steward creation. We're to steward the resources God has given us. We're to be those who demonstrate, God, I trust you, therefore I can rest. And in this, uh, as Moeller rightly quips, human labor is dignified, but it's also put in its place. Human labor is put in its place. So Sabbath rest is an issue of faith. It's an issue of justice, but also Sabbath rest is a witness issue. This is a witness. This is a missional issue. How we do this says something to the watching world. Remember again, Israel had been kept in captivity in Egypt, in bondage. God has set them free, and he's now demonstrating, you're my special people. I'm the one who's set you free, and how you do this in this Sabbath rest is going to say something about who I am and my particular relationship with you as you're among the nations. Because let me tell you something. Egypt didn't give them a day off. The wicked taskmasters in Egypt didn't say you get to take a day off. All of their false gods need to be satisfied every day. They don't give days off. Yahweh's demonstrating there's something of my benevolence, of my love, of my kindness to my people that shows I'm different. All these other false gods aren't even true gods, and the one true God is a gracious God who cares for his beloved. This is a witness issue. There's a missionary heart in Exodus. Even if you think back to Exodus 19 and in the context in which this word is coming, remember the mountain is quaking so we got thunder, we got smoke, we got crashes of thunder and lightning. God is speaking. It's a terrifying moment. The, the, the mountain is trembling. The people are trembling. But remember what God said he was doing? Exodus 19, verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So Yahweh's saying to Israel, I will take care of you because I'm sovereign and I'm good. I own it all. Therefore, work six days and take a day off. I got you. <laughs> and this is going to show the watching world that I got you, that I love you, that I care for you. And also just know the Sabbath was the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. So in, in the biblical unfolding, the biblical narrative. So first you have Moses, I mean, you have Noah. The Noahic Covenant is the sign of the covenant was the rainbow. Then you have Abraham. And the sign of the covenant was circumcision. Now we have Moses in this Mosaic covenant. The sign is the Sabbath. This sign marks, we find in Exodus 31, this sets apart the people of God as his special people. There's a missional impetus even in this command. The question is why? So again, if Sabbath is to cease arrest, if you're supposed to work for your six days and then take the seventh off and, and set it apart unto the Lord, why? What is he grounded? Look, verse 11. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it 
holy. Notice it points us back to creation. And that God creates the world in six days. And on the seventh day, he puts his feet up and looks at the good work he had done. And, and right now, he points back and says, look at that pattern. Look and see what I did. Now, God didn't need to rest. It's not like he created all things by the word of his power and then was like fatigued. <laughs> right? He does not tire. But he sat back and he celebrated his creation. He celebrated his finished work. He celebrated what he had done. And now as he talks to his people, he says, look back and see what I did. And I want you to do the same thing. I want you to celebrate my finished work. I want you to celebrate my creation and who I am. Now, some debate the similarities and distinction between the Mosaic Sabbath and the creation Sabbath. Whether the Sabbath was a creation ordinance like marriage. And if if some of you want me to get into that, just know I'm not going to geek out like that today. I'm happy to with you in conversation later. Most people in the room don't want me to geek out like that. (laughs) They want me to serve them and help them to go through this week. So that's what I'm going to do for this week. But So I'm not going to get into those disagreements. But what I want you to notice is that six days of work, one day of rest to celebrate God's work. This is what we see. This is what he says. This is what he grounds in this conversation with Israel. But not only here, if we flip over to Deuteronomy... It's not only a celebration of creation and God's pattern in work and rest. Deuteronomy, 40 years later, Moses tells Israel. He says, look, I want to connect the Sabbath not only to creation, but I want to connect it to redemption. They're on Mount Sinai receiving instructions on how to live this new life in God. They've been set free and rescued from bondage to live this new life. But later, Moses has got to talk to them. And when he does, this is what he says as he reminds them of this moment in these 10 words. Deuteronomy 5.15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So not only is the Sabbath a creation celebration, but it's a redemption reminder. He says, when you slow down and rest on this Sabbath day, I want you thinking God finished his work in creation, and he's the one who set you free from bondage. Israel, you did nothing. You had no say in the matter of being created or redeemed. God did it all. He's the one who did the work. God sovereignly completed creation. God sovereignly delivered Israel from captivity. Therefore, Israel is to work six days and then rest and remember her creator and redeemer. This sign, this Sabbath is a covenant sign that Israel belongs to the sovereign creator and redeemer who accomplished all of the work. That's why breaking the Sabbath had such a weighty civil punishment. Do you know Israel, the punishment for breaking the Sabbath was death. It was death. Why? And it's like, man, that that feels too intense if we're just talking about a day. But does it? If you broke the fourth commandment, you first had to break the first one. No other gods before me. You had to decide, no, no, I will have another God because I'm not going to obey what you're telling me about this day. Then that means you turn to another idol. So you also broke the second commandment. And now you're not, mis- you're not representing the God who saved you and delivered you, so you've also broken the third commandment. So in order to break the fourth, you've got to break the first three anyway. So for Israel, this was a massive issue. God had this sign to set apart and demonstrate, you're my special people. This is how you respond to me. So to reject the covenant sign of Sabbath rest was to reject Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, thereby breaking all of the commandments prior. Resting on the Sabbath was a big deal. Now, unfortunately, the sinful human heart did what it does. Throughout the rest of the Old Testament, Israel profanes the Sabbath. (laughs) So I don't have time to go there now. Go to Nehemiah chapter 13. You'll see an example of it there. But throughout the rest of it, so Israel's regularly profaning the Sabbath, not resting in Yahweh as they ought, breaking the law and the command. 
And instead, just like the human heart normally does, instead of casting herself on the grace and mercy of God, you know what Israel tries to do? Let me work my way back to right fellowship with God by creating some extra laws he didn't even give me. This is what the sinful human heart does. Like, uh uh-oh, I'm guilty. I broke the law. Well, let me make some laws I can keep, and then maybe God will let me back into his good graces. So we break the law and think somehow we can get back right with God by keeping the law. In our foolish arrogance, we seek to work our way into his right fellowship rather than casting ourselves on his mercy. This is what was going on with the Sabbath when Jesus showed up. And so my second major question is, what, what happened when Jesus showed up? So this is what's been going on. Israel's broken the Sabbath. They've created all these extra laws. And then King Jesus shows up. And, and, and look, look, there's policing of the Sabbath that's gone extra biblical and out of control. I mean, the policing and the rules are out of control. It kind of reminds me. So one time I was in college. And, uh, and listen, I'm, I seek to be um, a good citizen and obey the law. So none of this is uh, promoting rebellion against authorities, just to be clear. But I was in college and a, a friend of mine uh, decided last minute, we had some friends go down to Florida for spring break. It's like a Tuesday night about 9 o'clock. And we decide, you know what, let's surprise them. I call him about 9 o'clock, yo, what you doing? He said, nothing. I was like, you want to go down to Tampa? He's like, when? I was like, eh, a couple hours. He's like, let me talk to my parents. I was like, great. All right, I'll meet you in Charlotte. So we met at about midnight, and we drove to Tampa uh, through the night, randomly, just last minute. Now, I'm also not encouraging college students. I'm not saying y'all should necessarily do that. But <clears throat> so, so listen, <laughs> they got too excited. That's, I, move on from the illustration. This is not helpful. No. <clears throat> so listen, we head, we head to the beach. Now, on the way down, we want to keep ourselves awake, right? So it's like, so we, we, we back then, you, you, you printed a CD with nothing but beats, and we tried to freestyle rap all the way down to the beach to stay awake. It was terrible, and it was like cheesy Christian freestyle rap that was terrible over secular beats, and we were a little nervous, like, is that okay? I don't know. But anyway, so, so this is what we're doing on the way to the beach. But in the midst of this trip, a cop thinks he's about to make the greatest drug bust of all time. <laughs> So he's going to be severely disappointed once he pulls us over. But so we stop off. Uh, the sunlight is starting to finally rise. So we've been going through the night. We've been doing these terrible raps. We're bored. We're sick of each other. We're driving his car. And we're, we stop at the, and to get gas and get some snacks. And then we get back on the interstate. We get back on the interstate. And I'm like, Matthew, the sun is rising. Like, we're going to make it. We're actually going to make it. We've done this. We're going to make it. And so since the sun is coming up, I turn my lights off just because I'm celebrating. Well, there was a cop way out in front of me. And as soon as I turn my lights off, like he goes off the road. Dust is flying everywhere. I'm like, man, I wonder what that guy's about to do. <laughs> so then I go past him. I'm not even up to the speed limit yet at this point. So they're like, I'm not doing anything possible wrong, right? So he gets back behind me, turns the blue lights on. I'm like, I, I just got back. I don't even know why he would be pulling me over. So we pull in. He comes up beside me, puts the lights on the door. And it's like, sir, get out of the car. And I'm like, what is happening? <laughs> So I get out of the car, and we have this long exchange. And basically, again, he's thinking he's, he's caught some drug dealers running drugs down I-95 uh, in the middle of the night. Instead, he's caught a couple cheesy Christians who can't rap uh, just trying to go down to the beach with their Bibles. But so he pulls us over, and he has this conversation with me. He starts asking, sir, let me see your license. Why are you driving uh, this car if it's not your car? It's my friend's car. We're driving through the night. I'm tired. Okay, why do you have a South Carolina license and a North Carolina plate? Uh, sir, 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 it's a, that's a North Carolina license. But he had already said, uh, I got a Bradley Darsh, da-da-da-da, and says the wrong license. So they come back like, sir, we can't find that license. He's like, they can't find your license. I'm sorry, it's North Carolina. And I'm like, I, like I, I hurt. 
So I'm sitting there, my friend's in the car laughing. I'm trying not to get in trouble. I'm trying to figure out what's going on. And it all comes down to this. He finally says, sir, do you know why I pulled you over? I said, no, sir, I have no idea why you pulled me over. You blacked your lights out. I'm sorry, what? You blacked your lights out. So I, he said, you cannot turn your lights off until the sun is completely risen. I'm really sorry. I didn't know that law, right? So then he has to let us go and the whole thing ends. So he says he pulled me over for this little petty law. I assume he pulled me over because he thought he had a drug bust. And then it wasn't. And so he had to, it's, it comes up with this little. Literally, when Jesus shows up in Israel, there's rules that make that one look silly regarding the Sabbath. I mean, literally, there, there are stories. One scholar explains one. Some maintain that if a wall fell on top of someone on the Sabbath, only enough rubble could be removed to find out how badly the person was injured. If he's not injured too badly, then he must be left until the Sabbath ended when the rescue could be completed. Another one, Jewish rabbis gave intense attention to debating Sabbath restrictions. My favorite such debate is this. If an egg is found under a hen on the Sabbath morning, may it be eaten? It's a technical question. When, after all, is the labor performed? The hen is not available for interrogation. If the egg was to be the product of labor on the Sabbath, it is not to be eaten. If, however, the labor was done on some other day and it just appears on the Sabbath, then it's a gift. So again... <clears throat> My man pulling me over on the way to Florida, like he actually had just calls uh, compared to this. But this is what Jesus steps into. So now people have been breaking the Sabbath, try to create all these ridiculous laws to make themselves back right with God. And this is what the Lord Jesus steps into in Mark chapter 2. And we read this. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? He said to them, have you ever read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave to those who were with him? And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man, that's the Lord Jesus himself, is Lord even of the Sabbath. We flip over and just after this, Matthew chapter 12, verse 9. He went on from there and entered the synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. They asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, which one of you has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all. We read of another healing, this time uh, as Jesus sets free a lady possessed by a disabling spirit, Luke chapter 13. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. He laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Does not each one of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? And ought not this woman, the daughter of Abraham, whom Satan is bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. The Lord Jesus performed these and plenty of other healings on the Sabbath. So how does Jesus step in and clarify and correct the legalistic problem of his day? Well, first, I just need you to understand when Jesus shows up, he came to fulfill the law, all of it. He didn't break the Sabbath, 
Matthew 5, 17 says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So just let me give you just five quick observations about what we read and how Jesus interacted on the Sabbath and what we take away from what is actually fulfilling the Sabbath. Number one, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, so we must look to him. So he made that real clear. No, no, no. Like, I'm Lord over this. You want to have a fight? Just understand, I'm the, my, my opinion matters. I'm the one who's Lord and sovereign and king over the Sabbath. Number two, we can just make the observation, eating is not breaking the Sabbath. It's demonstrated with his disciples. They were hungry. They ate. He said, hey, this is not breaking of the Sabbath. Number three, notice we see work, which is necessary for worship. So temple service in their day, gospel work in the church today, isn't breaking the Sabbath command. So he highlights, no, there were those who had to work in the temple. They're not breaking the Sabbath. Also, number four, notice ministry that is merciful to sufferers and sinners is not breaking the Sabbath. He was healing. He was proclaiming. He was teaching good news of the gospel. He was declaring good news and displaying good deeds that commended that good news. And he's demonstrating none of that is breaking the Sabbath. And he says, in summary, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It's a good gift from God. The rest offered on the Sabbath was a gift from God to his people that they might rest in worship. Not a list of do's and don'ts meant to cripple true worship of God and true love of neighbor. So the question then for our day and in our moment is what happened to the Sabbath? So I want to talk briefly and and summarize our time together by talking about the relationship between the Sabbath and the Lord's day. So number one, there's no evidence that the early church observed the Jewish Sabbath beyond graciously tolerating those who continue to practice it. So you can go read later today in Romans chapter 14, verse 5 and 6, Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, that some were esteeming some days as more important than others. And Paul says, listen, some people are going to do that. Let's be charitable, let's be kind, let's be gracious, but we're not bound to these laws and these rules. So let's tolerate, let's be kind and gracious with those who disagree, but we're not looking to a particular 24-hour day. But instead... The early church gathered for worship on the Lord's day, not the seventh day of the week, but the first day of the week because of Jesus' resurrection. All four gospel accounts, when speaking of Jesus' resurrection, highlight that it was on the first day of the week. And shortly thereafter, the early church immediately, we learn from Acts chapter 20, verse 7, that they're gathering and breaking bread together, which is what they did. Look at Acts 2, 42 to 47. They're gathering and breaking bread together for worship on the first day of the week. We can look over in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1 and 2, and they were taking up a collection on the first day of the week when the Christians were gathering. So they're not participating in the Jewish Sabbath. Instead, the first day of the week, they're gathering and worshiping the resurrected Lord who resurrected on the first day of the week. And then we read in Revelation 1.10. This is where the title, the Lord's Day, comes from. John, the apostle, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. That is the first day of the week, the day Christ resurrected And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. So these biblical observations and others led second century century church father Ignatius to say, Christians no longer observe the Sabbath, but direct their lives toward the Lord's day on which our life is refreshed by him and his death. B.B. Warfield said it like this, Christ took the Sabbath into the grave with him and brought the Lord's day out of the grave with him on the resurrection morn. So practically, I just want to say a few things to you as you think about honoring the Lord, and being faithful to his word. Practically, some people are more Sabbatarian, others are not. Some think that the Lord's Day is a Christian Sabbath and and is morally binding in the law the same way the Sabbath was for Israel. 
Others said, no, Christ fulfilled. They don't believe in the tripartite uh, uh, breaking up of the law, moral, civil, ceremonial. They said, no, 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 Christ fulfilled the law totally. And the Lord's Day is important we worship, but it's not the exact same thing. There's a sliding scale of beliefs and arguments uh, throughout church history and among Christians even today. But here's what I want you to know. You can be a member of this church in good standing with differing views on the, the Sabbatarian continuum. What we do as a church, what we have in our confession of faith is the New Hampshire Confession of Faith from 1853. But in that confession, we took out two articles of the law and gospel and of a Christian Sabbath because we think Christians can worship together and disagree on some of the nuances of this conversation. Even some of the elders could have disagreed nuances on what this looks like and what kind of language we ought to use in this conversation. So in the spirit of Romans 14, you must hold your views. Your conscience must be bound to the scripture, but you must be gracious and kind with those who may disagree on some of the practical things. But what that means is what we need to focus on in the rest of our time is what's important for all of us, no matter where you land on that. And this is what's crystal clear. The Lord's Day has always been of massive importance to biblical Christians. Always. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the day more as you see the day drawing near. The Lord's Day is glorious. I had a conversation with a friend last night, he used to be a pastor, is now a coach, and he was saying he compared it to like a date day with your wife. It's like, do you have intimate conversations with your wife? Do you see her throughout the week? Yes. Are those important and, and beautiful and glorious? Yes. But when you set aside a whole day to spend with your bride, that's a particularly special day. So maybe it's almost like an annual anniversary, except once a week. When we gather for the Lord's Day, there's something special. Yes, do, is he the Lord of every other day? Absolutely. But is there something special about gathering with his people, underneath his word, by his spirit, singing his praise, praises and edifying and discipling and encouraging one another? Absolutely. But the Lord's Day is about resting in the finished work of God in Christ. On this Lord's Day, we gather and we think about what he did in creation. And I would encourage some of you on the Lord's Day every week, put your phone down just for a little bit. Just try it. <laughs> I promise you'll be okay. Like take a walk in nature. Don't check any of the little red bubble notifications. Be good for your soul. Look and see what he's done in creation. Stop letting Silicon Valley make you a slave to what they say you need. Go look in creation. Look at the finished work of God in Christ in creation. But primarily for Christians, what we do on the Lord's Day is look at the finished work of God in Christ in redemption. The greater exodus. God set Israel free out of bondage in, in Egypt. He set us free out of bondage to sin in Christ. And what he did in the exodus was pointing to what he did on Calvary. So as we gather, we remember every single week, week in and week out, the tomb's empty, the throne's occupied. He really did set us free. And we need these reminders because we're prone to wonder, Lord, we feel it. We're, we gather and we celebrate, we meditate on this finished work. And friends, please let me be crystal clear with you. Everybody in this room has broken the fourth commandment. All of us. All of us have not rested as we ought We've worked when we're supposed to rest. We've rested when we're supposed to work. We've messed up. And you can't work your way back to right relationship with God. The only, you can work your way to hell. That's the only place you can work your way to. You gotta rest your way to heaven. You gotta rest your way to glory. Rest yourself in the finished work of Christ. Look and see what he did. He kept the Sabbath perfectly. He is my Sabbath rest. He died on the cross for every Sabbath-breaking uh, error I've ever made. He rose from the tomb demonstrating, and i got to rest my faith, total trust in him and him alone. Everybody, no matter where they land on this continuum, believes that's the ultimate point of the Sabbath. i got to rest in Christ, rest in his finished work.
DeYoung says it like this, the most important way we observe the Sabbath is by ceasing from our flawed, sinful labors and trusting in Christ alone for salvation. So we obey the commandment, but also recognize that Jesus has transformed it. And this commandment more than others. Christ gives us the substance instead of the shadow. The Sabbath principle from creation to Exodus to the New Testament Lord's Day has always pointed us in the direction of trust. That's what the Sabbath has at heart always been about. Can you trust God to give you manna for two days on the sixth day? Can you trust God to make up for lost work on one day by blessing you on the other six days? Can you trust this burden you're carrying is not yours to carry it alone? Can you trust God to carry it and carry you if you have faith enough to stop striving and start worshiping? Non-Christian friend, rest all of your hope and trust in Christ. So when we gather on the Lord's Day, we think about the finished work of Christ. But we also notice the new creations around us. Christians, you know you have a responsibility to those people around you on the Lord's Day? So again, when we sing, do you know you're singing in order to edify and disciple the people to your left and right, front and back? Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. How, Paul? Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Think about the new creations to your right and left, front and back, every Sunday on the Lord's Day. Think about Sam, who has memories of being in the bush in, in Sudan as a lost boy, wondering would he survive, and God in his kindness brought him here. God in his kindness saved him through a friend who told him the gospel. He was baptized and united to Christ by faith in, 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 in his heart. He was united to Christ by faith, and he has a new life. He has a new identity, and he's now joined this body. This body, it's our job to disciple and encourage him in the faith. His job to disciple and encourage us in the faith. That's what we're doing when we're singing to one another. It's not just singing songs because we're Americans and we like music. <laughs> we're singing songs to disciple one another. We're on the Lord's Day gathered, and God uniquely by grace is edifying and building us up through the preached word, the sung word, the fellowship in the word, and as we gather, even seeing God's word discipled to one another. And we are missionary people, because our God is a missionary God. So we think of and pray for our sister. That's all I can say. She's somewhere in the world that we can't tell you about, proclaiming the good news of the gospel. She's going to be. She's trained. She's getting ready to go. And we pray for a while because this is who we are. We're proclaiming Christ is resurrected. He is Lord. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the Lord of all. We see that in our life. We see it in our mission. And think of the new creation to come. Deuteronomy chapter 12, Moses speaks of the rest to come in the promised land. The psalmist in Psalm 95 highlights Israel's failure and their inability in that generation to enter that rest. The author of Hebrews connects the dots in Hebrews chapter 4 and says this. If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. We gather on the Lord's day. We think on the finished work of Christ in creation. We think on the finished work in new creation on Calvary. We think of the new creations beside us and how he's doing it. But we anticipate that final rest. That final day when there's no more evangelism. Where there are no more missions. Well, there's no more cancer. Well, there's no more massive heart attacks. Well, there's no more racism. There's no more suffering. There's no more death. There's only rest in his presence forever. There'll be work, but it's not work with toil and sweat and pain. It's work with joy as worship to our great God in his presence forever. So when we gather, we remind ourselves that day's coming. And so we rest our way to that day. On the finished work of Christ, 
in the arms of Christ by the power of the Spirit, trusting will be with him in the new heavens and new earth that glorious day. So what are you allowed to do on the Sabbath? What are you allowed to do on the Lord's day? Do and don't do whatever it takes to make your heart rest in Jesus' finished work every Lord's day. Consider six days of work and a day of rest. Consider how you can prioritize being a meaningful member of a local church. If you're a pastor or a ministry worker or in a service job or some kind of job that requires your Sunday, ask pastors for help. How do I rest in Christ and his finished work? Even on the Lord's day in this circumstance, I find myself. If you're like, I don't have any pastors, get some. <laughs> like we got a membership class coming uh, February 24th, 25th. We'd love to have you. We'd love to try to shepherd and help you think through how do I do that? How do I live this out in my particular life? But every Lord's day, celebrate his finished work in creation. Celebrate his finished work in redemption on Calvary. Anticipate that final day, that final rest. Do it with the people of God and do it on mission as the people of God. And if you listen closely, every time we do it, even by faith right now, you hear that voice. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I'm so thankful for the church. So thankful for this church. I need this kind of rest and worship week after week after week. I already can't wait to gather and do it again with you next week. Lord willing, should he tarry or not take me home first? I look forward to doing it again and having these same reminders. Let's close in prayer.